0: While social trends like the Me Too movement have helped bring America's archaic views on female disempowerment out into the light, corporate America is still lagging behind in gender equality. While some strides have been made over the last decade, less than 10% of the C-suite are women today. Julia Borston, senior media and technology reporter at CNBC and author of When Women Lead, shares why she believes the workplace status quo is still tilted against female leaders
1: you're listening to
0: c-suite blueprint the show for c-suite leaders here we discuss no bs approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation let's start the show
1: julia thanks so much for being here
0: thank you so much for having me george it's a pleasure
1: Uh, It was a pleasure reading your book, and uh, something that really struck out to me was your positivity and your optimism, and reading through it, and even your own personal stories and experiences, that positivity could very easily be rage and frustration. So I'm curious where that comes from and and how you balance those two things.
0: Um, Look, I've I've been extraordinarily lucky in my life, in my career, so I have to say, I, I, I... Can't imagine feeling rage just because I feel like I've been so lucky in my life. Mm. Um, I think frustration is something that I have felt. But I think one reason I'm optimistic and I am so positive is is twofold. Number one, the women I have met and I've interviewed both in my career as a reporter at CNBC, but also for When Women Lead, are so inspiring. They are accomplishing so many phenomenal, remarkable, surprising things they make me they make me optimistic. They make me believe that, that the business world is going um, to a more gender diverse place simply because um, of the examples that they're showing me. The other reason I'm optimistic is because of the data. Study after study after study indicates that companies with more diversity, both in terms of gender and in terms of race, are more successful. Diversity of ideas, which oftentimes comes from a diversity of backgrounds, Helps make companies more successful. So ultimately, I think people are greedy, and if they are greedy, they'll follow the numbers and follow the data and invest more in diversity.
1: We can use capitalism on our side, and, and exactly. with that regard, and and I love data more than anyone. But I think also, you know, we're we're of similar age. Anecdotally, do you, how do you feel the trajectory has been just throughout your career and life?
0: Progress has been slow. And I think it's interesting because the actual progress in terms of the number of women in leadership has been slow. I mean, now 8.5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. That's up from like 4% what, a decade ago, but it's still tiny. So yes, there has been progress, but the overall percentages are tiny. Venture capital funding, there's been effectively no progress. Over the past decade, about 3% of all venture capital dollars went to female founders. That declined to 2% um, in 2021 and it has continued to decline in 2022. Um, I think it was 2.4% in 2021, it is now down to like 2% or 1.9%. So on one hand, you have very little tangible progress, or or, or slow tangible progress in terms of Mm. leadership. And yes, there's been progress, but the overall numbers are slow. When we graduated college in 2000, I was shocked then by how few women held positions of power. Um, based on the way I was raised by my parents and my family, um, I did think by now we would see more women in leadership positions than that. Eight and a half percent of women running the Fortune 500. Having said that, I do think there's been a lot of cultural change. And I think the Me Too reckoning of 2017, 2018 was a big part of that. And I think that on one hand, that's a great thing because companies now have affinity groups, they have DEI organizations. So there has been cultural change. But I think what's been frustrating for a lot of people is the disconnect between the perception of change and the amount of change there's actually been Mm. so i was talking to some um some some people who were kind of incredulous at some of those stats that i just laid out the eight and a half percent about the two percent of vc dollars they were just like how is that even possible and i think the answer is they think that there's been more progress because There are more women on the covers of magazines. There's more conversation about failed female CEOs like Elizabeth Holmes. There's more conversations about female CEOs in general and about gender and leadership and all this. So because there is that conversation and culturally we're having that conversation, people would expect there to have been more numerical progress. So on one hand, I think the cultural conversation is a positive thing that we can even be talking about these things. But on the other hand, I think that disconnect can be incredibly frustrating for women. And I talk, just being on my book tour, I've talked to a number of women at big male dominated industries, which, because every industry is male-dominated, male dominated, but big male dominated companies who are saying, it drives me crazy that the men I work with think that everything is fixed. But, like, look at the numbers, it's still far from fixed. I think it's like both, like, the, there's a benefit to the cultural change, but also a frustration around the disconnect.
1: Yeah. And, and the trajectory is there, but the pace is not what we would all yeah. hope that it, it would be. I know in, in in prepping for this, I listened to some of your other interviews and you said something I heard verbatim from my, my mother, which is they had two options when they were growing, going to school. They could be a nurse or they could be a teacher. And what's funny is I, I grew up with some very strong um, aunts and, and my mother, just female figures in my life. In a family of five, from the oldest to the youngest, the youngest was then able to go into finance. So just in that one span of those five yeah. children, there's a little bit of the the move up, but it's it's interesting to remind ourselves of how recent that was to yeah. the, to now think about the pace of change.
0: Yeah, generationally, I mean when my mom graduated college, she was like teacher or nurse. She chose teacher and she worked as a teacher for 11 years and then she went on and had other careers doing other things. But um, it took her a full decade to break out of that. And by the way, she loved being a teacher. It wasn't, you know, she, she did have a great chapter of her life as a teacher. But this idea that I thought I could do anything, what I didn't realize was that I wouldn't be able to reach the highest ranks. So my parents said, you could go into any industry you want. You could go into politics. You could go into medicine. You could go into business or whatever. They said that, like, the world would be my oyster. They were right in that I could enter these fields. What they were wrong about was my chances of making it to the very top. So I think what's interesting is, you know, there's this annual McKinsey Lean In study. And the one that came out this fall, um, soon after my book came out, showed this very clear graphic that shows why women aren't making it to the C-suite. And it looks looks at the pipeline of men and women, white men, men of color, white women, women of color, and the the numbers at which they enter the workforce. And then the pipes decline for everyone other than white men going from every level of promotion, from the entry level up to the C-suite. So the women are dropping out or missing out on promotions at every level of the, you know, every every phase of this whole process. And so to see it all graphically laid out explains why there hasn't been more progress. Women are missing the first promotion. If they're not getting the second promotion, then their chances of making it anywhere near the C-suite are minuscule. And so I think there are these structural changes that don't just take a year or two to, to fix, take generations to fix.
1: They do. And the data doesn't lie. You know, what I struggle with is you talk about these traits of successful uh, female leaders or just leaders in general. Right. Empathy, vulnerability, compassion. And there's there's tons of research that that that's important for leaders and that they create stable psychological safety nets for for teams. Teams are more productive. Innovation can thrive in, in, in workplaces like that. But then the research also shows that the perceived difference of when that trait is carried out by a man versus a wim- woman is very, very different, right? So, you know, I, I think it was even at your alma mater, Susan Fisk has that model of uh, stereotypes where compassion and, um, and competence, you know, someone who's very com- compassionate don't have, if they're Im- implied don't have the competence, then there's more inclined to have pity on that person rather than to actually like trust them as, as a leader.
0: Yeah, I mean, but what's so interesting about all of this and all of these traits is that men should be able to lead with the skills and strategies that make women effective leaders. And men should be able to break free from the stereotypes of how they're supposed to act as well. And I think back you when know, we talked about how we both entered the working world in 2000. Back then, the Jack Welch GE model was the gold standard of leadership. There was a rising tech industry, but there was, this, in terms of traditional business, Jack Welsh, G model, that was how Six Sigma, that's how companies were supposed to be managed. And then there was this other sort of corresponding rise of this move fast and break things model. That's what leaders look like. They either look like Mark Zuckerberg or they look like they were built in the Jack Welsh model. And I do think that leadership has sort of gone in these waves where there are certain things that are trendy in terms of skills and strategies that are are elevated. But what's so interesting to me is that if we could be in a new... I hope we are at the beginning of a new phase now. And I think that the challenges of the pandemic and this recession that people think we're going into right now will shed a light on the importance for everyone to think differently about how they're leading, to think differently about how they're managing employees, to think about the importance of things like empathy and vulnerability to, to motivate and, and, and drive successful outcomes at their companies. That my book isn't just about inspiring women to lead like other successful women, but inspiring everyone, especially men, to look at what it takes to be successful now. And it's, it's so interesting to go back to my early days as a reporter at Fortune Magazine in 2000 and think about like what types of leadership were lauded back then. And how there was this whole generation, like nobody wants to lead like Jack Welch now, you know, like Six Sigma. That's not how that business is is run anymore. And um, and I just think it's just fascinating to see how as culture changes back to like the cultural changes and as things like pandemic change, the way people are physically working or where they're physically working, the conversation about what it means to be a good leader or a good manager changes as well. Or I hope it will change as well.
1: I do as well and, and maybe this is where perception is different from reality but i know maybe in the bubble that i'm in you know we we get to create our own culture and we choose our own clients and 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 we do you know we live it out as you know with empathy and trust and diverse opinions and and we see it amongst the companies that we work with and and you, you read things from A- amy edmondson or patrick lencioni and it's all about those right and, and my throughout my career for sure from 2000 until now you know, I've even gone through a personal journey of thinking that I needed to be like that, but be, being in conflict with it because it's not who I am at my heart, you know, and now, now I find that we have a much healthier organization because, because of that type of, of leadership that we have, you know, my business partner and I, he's a male as well. We go on a regular mindfulness and meditation retreat in the Berkshires, right? And, and, and we meet a lot of other female leaders there. I, there are not many other male leaders there. I could tell you that.
0: But what's interesting is what you just said is this idea that you were trying to lead in a way that actually wasn't authentic to you. And so much of what's essential to these skills and strategies of female leaders is they are leading in a way that's authentic to them. And I think about the amazing opportunity I had in interviewing people during the pandemic because I think the pandemic forced a reflection for everyone. Um, self-reflection, who am I, what do I really care about, what do I miss about the the way I used to live, what do I not miss, why am I doing this, what, what is it that I care so much about my company, how do I want it to be run, and I think there's this reflection that came, that was sort of a, a nationwide reckoning of like reflection, people sort of taking a step back to think about their lives, and what's so interesting to me is that authenticity, as part, part of authenticity is even knowing yourself, You can't be authentic if you don't take the minute to figure out who you actually are. And so I think some of the key traits for the women I profiled were authenticity, but also humility and the authentic understanding, like, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to ever lead like him. So let me figure out who I am, what I'm really good at and how to make the most of those skills. And also let me be humble about what I need to learn and how I need to get better. But that's why I I mean, it's so great to hear that you're going on your meditation retreats because a lot of that is just taking a moment to... To align your your goals, I I assume, with your your co-founder, but also to figure out what you could be doing better. And that comes down to humility.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but there's there's and I totally agree. There's when I try to put myself myself in the shoes of a woman, and my wife and I joke about this quite a bit, is I could see where something might be frustrating where it'd say, oh, you look at a uh, at a male leader who's leading with empathy and compassion and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, he's doing such a great job." And then you maybe have some women that are sitting on the bench that are raising their hands saying, "Hey, I'm really good at that. I've always been really good at that. Why aren't you put me in and and I could just see that as being frustrating, like, hey, why why did it take so long for you guys to figure that out? Yes, know? I mean,
0: that, that could be frustrating. But I also wonder if the men who are leading with empathy and compassion are more likely to identify the fact that their female underlings, their female VPs or managers are doing that already and are doing a great job and maybe need to be elevated. So I think mm. if you are oblivious to the value of those skills, you might not value them in your female employees as much. And I think, I mean, ultimately, I hope in, in the world, you said you have a five-year-old daughter, I hope the world she grows up in, we don't have leadership traits be as gendered as they are now because men and women are both leading with all traits and really leading in ways that are authentic to them. But I think that's the thing. It's like if men don't understand the value of those skills and strategies, then they're never going to be seeing that that what their women employees are doing is so valuable.
1: Yeah. And it is amazing to see things through my daughter's eyes. You know, Mary Poppins is a popular movie at our house. And when she's asking questions about women's suffrage and trying to explain to her that we, and she just can't even compute yeah. to her why that would be a thing. It's, it's very interesting. I'd love to dig a little deeper into some of these traits that you talk about female leaders have an innate ability for. And one that really jumped out to me was th- this ability to solve root problems and, and avoid the Band-Aid fixes. I'm curious, what's the why behind that? Why, why is that more innate in women?
0: So, and here's the thing, I want to be careful about the term innate, because there's this idea that things that are innate are biologically determined. And I am not a biologist, I am a journalist, and I truly believe that almost everything I write about in my book, I think I mentioned testosterone maybe twice, but almost everything I write about in my book are things that are socialized things that women are trained to do from the time they're young girls. There's a, Women are trained to be empathetic, right? There mm. might be something biological that makes women more attuned to that, but women are trained to be empathetic because of the way women are socialized to interact with their friends from that a very sense. early age. So I think it's really important because if things can be taught, then everyone can learn these things. And there are some women who are more empathetic than others, but you can pick up on clues and work to be more empathetic, or you can work to be more vulnerable. Women may be more comfortable with those things, but everyone of any gender can work on these skills and strategies. So that's why I'm always careful about the word innate. Now, in terms of this idea of big picture solutions rather than band-aid fixes, this actually does fit into some brain science, one of two places in the book where I talk about biological differences between men and women. But again, this is something that can be practiced and taught and also as a social component to it. There's a researcher named Barbara Annis who talks about the difference between divergent and convergent thinking. And I quote her in the book in this chapter, but this is something that came up in many different stories and interviews and also in other research. So let me just explain the difference between the two. Convergent thinking is the idea that if you have a problem, you want to converge on it. You want to focus in on solving the problem as quickly and efficiently as possible. This is obviously, in many occasions, a very useful approach, right? If there's an emergency, you want to solve the problem as quickly as possible. Divergent thinking is the idea that you're pulling on threads. You're asking about things that are tangential, that are not essential to the problem that you're solving, but are tangential, that women are more likely to do. So this is something where women are more likely to ask about these tangential things to try to paint a bigger picture, understanding the world in which the problem exists. So I talk about this as the difference between women are asking about the forest, whereas men are more likely to try to focus on fixing a problem with a particular tree. And so in understanding the forest, women may have more context to help fix the tree. But what's so interesting is that this is one reason why male-female partnerships are so effective and why there's so much data about the value of partnering men and women it's because you want the advantages of the divergent approach and the convergent approach you want women to be saying hey what about this thing that's tangential you don't want to say hey that's unrelated you're wasting our time you want to say okay what could we learn from this tangential thing that'll help us make the forest healthier and you also want to have that urgency of focusing on fixing the tree but i would say that this divergent approach that women are more likely to take taking the time to ask the questions and pull on the threads, that is incredibly valuable when it comes to being adaptable. Women rank higher when it comes to adaptability quotient. And one reason I believe, and I've seen in my interviews, that women are better able to adapt and pivot when the situation changes is because they've already taken the time to understand the forest. So you have a problem with a different tree, there's an an emergency somewhere else in the forest, you've already taken the time to understand the whole situation, so you're better positioned to make a change and to be decisive and make a quick um, adaptation. So I think that's why these things all tie in together. But um, I think culturally we live in a society that's always focused on the urgency of fixing a problem now. Um, I find that in my own work, I know it personally, just in terms of dealing with being a parent and, and, and you know getting through the day that it's all about like, let's just fix the problem as quickly as possible. But I think taking this divergent approach what are the underlying issues? What are the related issues? What is the fundamental issue that may have nothing to do with the problem with the tree itself, but we need to understand to fix the tree? I think the sort of forest trees conversation is very important to understanding any situation in business, whether you're a CEO or not. But I really think that this idea of the value of the divergent approach is something everyone can take, even though women may be more likely to do it, men should think about the opportunity there as well.
1: That's really interesting. You know, we, we have the benefit of working across many different industries. And if I think about it, we actually have a process that we go through where we parachute in, we do divergent, convergent thinking. And we always have a group that has a diverse set of expertise. But now that I look back at it, every single one of those teams has been a co ed team that, that really, because we're both looking for quick wins as well as the big picture items that, that are out there. So that's, that's interesting to see how it actually plays out.
0: And I've actually seen it in a lot of husband-wife teams and male-female teams. So for instance, like Spring Health, which is one of the companies I write about in my book, the CEO is a woman, April Co. She takes a business approach and her partner in the company is is a scientist. He's the guy who did all the research about depression and mental health and outcomes and trying to correlate treatment with outcomes. And so she took his Academic research and applied it to the business model, and together their approach. He's he's dealing with the tree of the, the research, and she's thinking about the forest of all the people that could help. The combination of that is so valuable. Or even City Block Health, which is another company I write about, that's very much about looking at underlying problems. Is the partnership of was founded as a partnership of a, a man and women with different backgrounds. One working in public health, the other is a doctor, and so I think. You know, Again, to break free, I'm not just saying only women should be CEOs. I'm saying we need to think differently about the stri- strategies we use in partnerships and the opportunity in leveraging the different perspectives of women as opposed to just having teams predominantly run by men.
1: Yeah, now more than ever, ever luckily, we're realizing how important resilience and flexibility and adaptability are as organizations. I mean, it's usually the top three things in the, the corporate strategies that we're seeing these days. It's been a frequent topic on this podcast. The other thing I wanted to dig into was your weaknesses become your superpower. And there's always a lot of talk about imposter syndrome. But then there's this other trait that you talk about where there's, this, um, there's more of an inclination to entertain other people's perspectives and ideas. And I wonder, is, there, is the same thing that drives the, the imposter syndrome, the same thing that's driving those superpowers to be able to leverage other people's point of view, have a diverse perspective?
0: Hmm. I mean, that's interesting because imposter syndrome is in a way almost too specific to be the Mm. source of that. And that imposter syndrome is this questioning of whether you deserve to be somewhere. And I think that imposter syndrome really ties into the fact there's lack of representation. Mm. If you don't see women in certain roles both men and women are going to assume that women aren't good in that role. And there's this all this interesting research which I talk about in the book and this idea is that the less representation you see of someone in a role, the more the natural assumption is is that well people aren't good at those people aren't good at that thing. And I talk about it there's a great study about jockeys and and horse racing and how this plays out in the way people bet in horse racing if they don't see women compete as jockeys in certain roles. But so I think imposter syndrome is you're going to assume you don't deserve to be in a place because you don't see other people like you, or maybe other people have second guessed you. There's a second thing about confidence. And I think imposter syndrome, I'd love to separate from confidence as much as possible, because I do think imposter syndrome can be so much a reflection of Mm. society. But the research about confidence was really interesting to me. And this idea that if you're overly confident, it is dangerous for business. It's not just a negative, but overconfidence can be like a distinct danger, especially in risky, in times of crisis or or risky situations. Because if you're overly confident, you're not considering the perspectives of other people, you're saying, I got this all figured out, and you're making decisions which may end up being impulsive because you haven't considered the wealth of data. What's interesting to me is the idea that if you're not feeling confident, you can use that as an opportunity. Mm and say, I'm not feeling confident. Let me go out there and do the research. Let me do the work and let me gather perspectives from as many different corners of the company or outside the company, just gather as many different perspectives as possible. Use that data that I've just gathered to put together my own opinion. And once I have that opinion, that's the moment to be to confidently go out and execute. And so I think, um, I would say, you know, imposter syndrome is like, we all deserve to be wherever we are and we shouldn't question that, but we can take a lack of confidence in a moment as a sign that maybe it's time to go do research and then to identify when we've done enough research to feel more confident to go out and execute. I mean, I always joke that if I'm not feeling confident going into an interview, it means I need to do more homework. And for me personally, like I know I could do enough homework until I feel comfortable for, you know, confident going to every single interview um, as as a journalist at CNBC. But part of that is pulling on different perspectives. And so women are more likely to pull on perspectives from across an organization. But I think this idea that like leverage a lack of confidence as a hint that you need to go do that work and then turn up the confidence when you need to go execute and don't think of being confident all the time as the best thing. That's not the best thing. Your business is not going to be successful if you pretend to be confident all the time or even if you are confident all the time.
1: Something else I looked at with this was the, the perceived confidence men typically assume that they know what they're doing until they prove otherwise. Just I'm talking about social biases, mm-hmm. right? And then with women, they kind of have to prove that they know what they're doing before you, you believe that they have the confidence. And I know speaking from, from personal anecdotes, I speak very confidently about just about everything. And I've, I've actually had to like come up with common language where I stop my team and I say, Hey, I don't know what I'm talking about here. I just have to say that all the time (laughs) because people, otherwise people won't check me where I need to be checked and it's actually a problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that ties into this idea of vulnerability. If you are confident all the time or you say you're confident all the time, and I always joke that we're in like a fake it till you make Mm. it society. So think about how much people are like, just fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it, pretend you know what you're doing until you actually do. But if you're always pretending you know what you're doing, even when you're not quite there, then you're not being vulnerable about what you don't know and you're not learning. One common theme I found among the 120 people I interviewed for this book is a growth mindset. And what I see as a growth mindset is a combination of humility, what you don't know, and confidence that you can learn that stuff, what, that you can learn what you don't know, or you can learn more. So that combination of humility and confidence, if that, that to me is what, what creates a growth mindset. And I think faking it till you make it all the time, you end up missing out on, on learning all the stuff that you're going to need to know over the long run. And that's where I think vulnerability comes in, admitting what you don't know, admitting what you need help with. That's how you hire people who can complement your skill set or ha- complement your expertise. But it's so funny what you said about, you know, you you tell your team, I don't actually <laughs> know what I'm talking about right now. That's very important because, my you know, my husband always jokes and say, often wrong, never in doubt um, approach. You know, it's like if you always seem like you know what you're talking about, even when you don't, then you end up losing
1: out. Yeah, you do. Well, we've one thing we've instilled across the board is also to qualify anything anyone says to say, hey, this is coming from expertise or this is coming from opinion. And that way people know where, where they can weigh in on it. You know, your your growth mindset, what really struck out to me that what you wrote about was um, or you referenced I think it was a study where when children were, uh, were instilled with a growth mindset earlier, it actually kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy where they then saw additional um, opportunities where they otherwise didn't. And as a father of a five-year-old daughter, I guess the thing... I was going to ask you how I could be a better leader, but I figured I'd, I'd rather ask you how I could, I could be a better father to my, my daughter. What can I instill?
0: Um, well, <laughs> Easy question. I mean... <laughs> parenting you know parenting is so easy um i have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old son so um it's been really interesting writing this book and reporting this book as a mother of two boys because i think about the world i want them to live in and also all the ways i want them to learn from the amazing women i wrote about um i think it's very important for all children to have a really diverse array of role models it was mind-boggling to me just phenomenally Crazy to me, the power of pattern matching Mm -hmm. and this idea that people are always trying to match, to fit the world into patterns that they see that exist. And our kids need to see that sometimes leaders are women. A lot of times leaders are women, and that can be what a leader looks like. And I think that the more they have diverse role models or diverse examples of success, the more they'll be able to see that, oh, I could do this or this person could do that, or I don't need to just assume leaders all look like Jack Welch, back to the world we lived in when we graduated in college. So I think that that's really important for all children. But then in terms of all of us, I think the growth mindset is amazing. I mean, going back to this idea of like applying some of these skills or some of these strategies, I love this idea of seeing women apply a growth mindset to hiring Hiring. or a growth mindset to building teams. Don't put people in teams based on the experience they've had, but what you know they're They're capable of hire people who have never done this job before, but can learn it, and then you're going to benefit from having these outside perspectives. So I think this idea of like we should all have a growth mindset constantly, but we also can apply a growth mindset to our businesses and think about how we want our businesses to grow and change. So I guess it's both a parenting (laughs) parenting comment and a leadership comment that they're not dissimilar. But I think it's like goes back to the humility and the confidence, like. The confidence you can change and the humility to know that you don't know everything. And I mean, I think all these things tie together.
1: Yeah, I think there's 99% overlap between leadership and parenting Uh, and the diversity in hiring. You know, what what we always talk about is heart, mind and briefcase and the heart and mind are much higher priority than, than the briefcase that they come with. Um,
0: I mean, who carries a briefcase
1: anymore? <laughs> I saw one the other day. It was, it was jarring actually when I saw it.
0: Was it like old school? Very old school, like, yeah,
1: very old school, it was jarring. Um, Julia, this has been a pleasure. It was a pleasure reading the book too. It was just, it took me on my own journey, thinking about my, my, myself and my business and my daughter and my family. You've interviewed so many uh, amazing people. Uh, I'm always curious to ask you, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: I'll tell you something I learned in this book, writing this book, but also in doing interviews. And it's something that I learned from my, in the context of learning from my husband, who's a filmmaker, he's a producer. He says, don't save it for the sequel. Mm. And what what he meant by that, or what I've taken that to mean is, if there's something you're excited about, throw it in now. Put it in the book now. Don't save it for the sequel. If there's an interview question you want to ask. Don't wait till the end of the interview because you may not know how the conversation is going to go in the next 10 minutes. Don't save it. Sort of use the good stuff now because you don't know how the world or the situation is going to change. And it's a little bit of like carpe diem sees the day, but also don't be afraid or feel like you have to hold anything back because the world may change and the situation may change with it. So I was talking to my husband about whether or not to include something in this chapter. Maybe this goes in some later book or some later chapter. And he said, don't save it for the sequel. This is good now. Make it, Put it in there now. But I think the pandemic has sort of inspired this, like, what are we waiting for? Who knows how the world's going to change? And also the business situation might change. So if you have an idea for now, do it now. And I think that there is this whole idea that you have to wait until you're really ready. I mean, back to women in business, but women tend to not apply for jobs unless they meet 19 of the 20 criteria. Men will apply for a job if they meet half the criteria for a job. But I think it's like, what are you waiting for? Take the risk, you know, throw in the story, ask the question because the situation may change. So if you have something good now, use it now.
1: It seems relevant now more than ever. I love it.
0: Don't save it for the sequel.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for your insight and your wisdom and appreciate the time.
0: You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until
1: next time.